0: So this morning we are looking at these two texts, um, this encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees and then an encounter that he has with the Sadducees. And right before this, Jesus has just already kind of encountered a challenge by the Sanhedrin, which is the group, the greater uh, group of three parties, the, the Pharisees and the And the Sadducees, and it's kind of comprised of the religious leaders. They all make up this group, the Sanhedrin, which had uh, about 71 members. And in this previous passage, they come to Jesus and they challenge him um, about what he's done in the temple and cleansing the temple. And, And as they come to him, they uh, they are asking him by what authority he 's done these things you know who, who do you think you are to to come in here and to to flip over all the the tables and drive people out and stop the sacrificial flow and and Jesus responds back to them uh, you know by to their question of, of whose authority are you doing this and by by saying you know let me give you a question let me pose a question to you who uh, was john's baptism from man or or was it from God and he poses this question back to the Sanhedrin in order to call their attention to the baptism events to to bring them back to jesus's baptism there in which uh, Jesus fulfilled the, the the prayer of Isaiah when Isaiah prayed, I believe it was in Isaiah sixty four when he prayed, you know, Lord, that you would that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear it in two and come down. And at the baptism, as Jesus was there in the water with John, it tells us that the heavens were were torn in two, they were tore open, and then the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends, and then the Father speaks forth, this is my beloved Son. Calling them out. And so when Jesus is saying, was the baptism of John, was it from from heaven or was it of man? He's calling them to consider the source of his authority. He's not just coming up with like a wacky question and response, but is really allowing them to see that his authority is, is not just... From him saying, "Oh, it's my own authority or my authority from God." But he's saying, "Consider in your own tradition, this is what is ha- would happen when Messiah comes, when the the one who God sends comes." And then he goes on to explain in a parable about this landowner who sends servants to go and uh, to go and pick up fruit from some tenants who had rented it, and the The landowner has sent tenants again and again, and the uh, or has sent his servants again and again to pick up this fruit uh, the result of the harvest and the ten, the tenants they beat every servant that 's come, and some they kill and finally the landowner says, "You know what I will send my son, my only beloved son, I will send him they will respect him and the son goes with the father 's authority to the father 's property with the father 's mission and yet the land or the tenants, they recognize that this is the heir, and they say, This is the heir, let's kill him. Because if we kill him, the property will become ours. And as Jesus spoke this parable, the religious leaders perceived that the parable was against them. That he was actually saying, I am the one, I am the beloved son who has been sent, and you have, will reject me, and you will indeed kill me and try to take what belongs to the Father. And Jesus, and so they the the religious leaders they left in a huff. And now this morning, here's kind of like you know another round of uh, attack upon Jesus. And they kind of go about it in like this really sneaky way. And we have two groups that are coming to Jesus this morning: the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they come at Jesus in two specific ways, in, in two ways that we're going to consider it. First, they come at Jesus with a political angle, this political question. And then secondly, a theological question. Look at uh, verse 13 here. First, the political section. Verse 13, the Pharisees, um, they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So this Herodians uh, group, basically it means servants of, of Herod. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't get along. The, the Pharisees were totally against the Roman government. The Herodians were for the Roman government. And they had nothing in common except they both wanted to destroy Jesus. And so these two enemies, they come together for the purpose of trapping Jesus in his talk. And the Herodians are basically, it's just this, it means those who are a part of the household of Herod, uh, those who are his officials. And they come to trap Jesus in his talk, much like you, know, you would plan to trap uh, an animal. He would lay a trap in order to to catch uh, or or hunt an animal. And so they come to Jesus, and they say to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, they're totally buttering him up here. They're trying to come in there, and, oh, we know that you're true, and we know that you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're so, like, devoted to God. And, you know, we know that what you, what you say is in the, that you truly teach the way of God, which is totally, like, buttering, up, buttering him up. And they're totally hypocritical in what they're saying here. Because a few verses earlier, when they were asking him, like, where does your authority come from? And, like, Jesus is telling them, like, consider the baptism of John. You know, and they, the Pharisees finally respond, like, you know, they say, we don't know. We don't know where your authority comes from, and now they're claiming to say, "Oh yeah, we totally know where your authority comes from." Jesus, Jesus asks them to consider that event, and they say, "We don't know." But now here, they they don't they don't uh, they they come at him by saying, "We know that we know that you are are from God, and we know that you truly teach the way of God." It's totally a lie that they're coming at him, although they're speaking truth that Jesus is from God, and although he does teach truly the way of God, it reveals their wicked hearts and the way that they're coming at him. Now, they come after buttering him up, like real immediately to their question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So they're coming at Jesus with this political question, and there's two parties there, one representing the anti-Roman government, the Pharisees, and the pro-Roman government, the Herodians. And and then also, you know, they're kind of living under occupied Rome. Or Rome is occupying uh, Israel. And the tax that they're referring to was this imperial poll tax. It was first instituted in uh, 86. And the amount that was required to satisfy the poll tax was a denarius, which was, you know, a, basically an a average daily wage at that time. And a denarius was this silver coin That bore the image of Tiberius Caesar. And whenever Rome would produce coins, on their coins, they would put either uh, their leader or they would put, uh, they would put, uh, you know, they would engrave in it a a scene from a great victory or a great battle that happened. And and they would do this with uh, statues. They would put them all around the city. And what this was to do was to remind people that if you oppose Rome, this is what happens to you. You see the, the scene of their victory. It's it's a reminder to those that that Rome is ruling over, don't try to come against us because that will happen to you. It's... it's it's a reminder, they're a visual reminder to every single person that you don't oppose Rome. And here on the coin, it's the image of Tiberius Caesar, who was the, the ruler at the time. And on the coin was his image, and the coin had an additional inscription uh, stamped upon it. The, the inscription was this. It said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Augustus, when it's translated, it means the one to be served with religious awe. Basically, what it's saying here is Tiberius Caesar, the divine one, he's, he's claiming to be God, the one to be served with religious awe. This is a, a divinity claim. And, and throughout Rome, the emperor was considered to be a god. And the reverse side of the coin, it bore the image of Tiberius's mother, um, Livia, and it had the inscription on it, uh, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. And so the coin itself was very uh, politically and theologically charged. It, It had these dual meanings within it. Now to the Jews, paying the tribute money, it involved acknowledging that They were under the rule of this foreign uh, authority. And it also kind of had this weird feel because they were paying with kind of like this idolatrous coin. They had to pay it in that specific coin. And so they didn't really like it. They didn't want to live under, you know, Gentile rule. And even more so, the expectation uh, of the Messiah was that the Messiah would come and he would drive out the Gentiles, that he would get rid of all of them, not that, that he would, you know, make a place for them. They thought that he would come as a military leader who would who would be uh, who would rid uh, the land of the Romans, and so when they ask this question, it would be expected of the Messiah in their day that in their common thought that the Messiah would reject the idea of payment of the taxes to Caesar, because in their minds it was. He was there to, to overthrow Rome, to destroy Rome, to come in as this military leader and become king. And so they pitched this question to him along with the Herodians. And what they're trying to get Jesus to do here is kind of perform this... Uh, really commit to a position that would lead to a political revolt that would lead to to jesus coming into a place where if he opposes the taxes then the romans will come in and they will destroy him because they don't need a revolution on their hands and they squash those real quick but if he sides with the romans then the jews see like oh you must not really be from god and so they ask him this question But Jesus, in verse 15, knowing the hypocrisy, said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on it? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus knew exactly what to do here. He knew what they were trying to do. He knew how he was going to respond here. He requests a denarius and they bring one to him. And he asks them to observe the coin. He asks them to look at it. And he says, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Some of your translations may say, whose image is upon this coin? And and what inscription is on it? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus says in response to them, after considering that, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So the Jewish leaders, when they had spoken to Jesus, they used, when they said, uh, you know, should we pay these things when they the, their original word that they used to him to to ask Jesus about it should we give these things to Caesar but when Jesus responds his original language that he uses he says uh, he, he uses a word that um, means to pay a debt he says that money doesn't even belong to you so just give it back to him the the Pharisee is saying like should we just give him like what we consider to be ours and Jesus says give him what is his. It, it's, it's not yours. It's his. It has his inscription on it. Jesus here, he implies by saying this, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, is that things that have a marking, an owner stamped upon it, those things belong to that owner. It's like When um, my kids get toys, and you know, or or and they want to like write their names on their cups so they don't get them mixed up with one another, they want to mark, they want to inscribe their name upon it, or um, you know, like in the movie Toy Story, like there's Toy Story and like you know Andy and he has like it's on the bottom of Woody's foot, or and then and then when the new toys come, they're all pumped up when they get their name inscribed. It's like I have an owner. I have, I have someone who cares for me. I, I have an owner. I'm, I'm Andy's now. And they're like all tripping out. That's their, their moment where they see that, their, uh, that owner has inscribed his ownership upon them. And so here, when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's saying Caesar's image is on here. He has his name on it. He owns it. Just give it back to him. It's not yours. You're not paying a tax. You're just giving back something that belongs to him. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't stop with the question of the taxes. He takes it further. This is what he says. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. They only ask him about the tax. But then he goes on and says, and to God the things that are God's. When Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is on this, whose image is on this, He's calling the Pharisees to consider that idea of likeness, image, ownership. This coin belongs to Caesar. His name's on it. When he, Jesus uses that, he uses the same wording, same phrasing, that calls us back to Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He's saying Caesar's coin has his image stamped upon it. It belongs to him. But mankind has God's image stamped upon it and you belong to God. Render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. You have God's image and likeness upon you. You need to give what is God's to God. See, the Pharisees had paid their taxes with the Roman coin. They had no... they Begrudgingly, of course... But they had disregarded the claims of God upon their life. They were trying to take that vineyard from that landowner. Let's kill the son. Let's make it ours. But Jesus says, consider what you're doing. You have an image, a likeness stamped upon you from the beginning of time, from creation, that you are not your own, but you are created in the image and likeness of God. Jesus implies this with, like, that the ultimate authority rests upon God when he uses that word. He's calling them back to consider that because the creation account is where we look for the root of how things are to be. And Jesus is saying, don't go with what you have already come up with already and you've changed things, consider how God originally created you. You were not made so that you could take things from God, but you were made in God's image and likeness to know God. And by trying to take the temple, trying to rid, you know, to kill the heir, the son, as as the landowner so faithfully sent him, they have missed the point. They've disregarded God's claims. And then it says in uh, verse 17 there, they marveled at him. They marvel not so much at Jesus' profound response. They're not like, wow, that was amazing. They're baffled at the fact that they can't respond to it. They don't, they don't have anything. It's like, oh, what do we say to that? They tried to lay a trap, didn't work out, and they have nothing. There's nothing that they could hold on to there. Now, Round two, theological. Pharisees, they don't have anything. Second round, the the theological question. The Sadducees come to him, verse 18, and they say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question. So here's who the Sadducees are. I'm going to contrast them with the Pharisees to kind of give you a little bit of a more thorough understanding. The Sadducees were a group um, that was more tied more closely uh, to, the high, uh, to the priesthood. The Pharisees, they believed in divine sovereignty, that God is controlling everything and that he can do anything and he has ordered things. But the Sadducees, they affirmed uh, basically human free will, like only, only humans have a choice to do anything and God doesn't really play out in society. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons, whereas the Sadducees did not they didn 't even consider that the Pharisees accepted a broader understanding of scripture and revelation, which included not only the written law uh, the Torah, but also they considered oral tradition as well and other revelation that would come so they kind of had the Pharisees kind of had their own more loosely theological argument uh regarding scripture, and then the Sadducees only accepted the written Torah. The Pharisees affirmed the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees completely denied it. It didn't even exist. Their view was that they believed that at death, the soul perished along with the body, and there was no future reward, no future punishment. It was just like, once you're dead, you're dead. Nothing really matters there. Um, but that wasn't the common belief in Jesus' day. If, even if you look at, like, John 11, when, uh, when Lazarus has died, and, um, you know, the, Jesus is like, he's only sleeping. And Mary and Martha are like, well, we know, Lord, on the last day, Lazarus will be raised. Like, there was a common understanding among the majority of Jews that there was a resurrection, And uh, it even went so far as to make it into some of the rabbinic texts, the Mishnah. It declares, whoever denies the resurrection of the dead has no share in the world to come. So if you don't believe in it, even if it exists, you get nothing. Like you have, you don't get to be a part of it. But the Sadducees, they didn't hold to that view. They completely denied the resurrection. And so uh, because, and this was really important, because they were closely associated with the priesthood, which meant that their influence was over the temple and the temple authorities. Like they were the most conservative theological religious leaders in that day. The uh, the Pharisees would be considered, you know, more liberal in their thought, and they had um, more left leaning views. And the Sadducees were more far right. So, from our judgment in society, or in our view now. In our modern day, when we look at them, we're like, "Yeah, they're both whacked out." You know, they like one. As you're hearing about them, like, "Yeah, that's right, and that's right," but it, neither one is is completely right in their view. And so, these highest religious authorities in the land they approach Jesus with this hypothetical theological question. It's like you think if you were like this crazy religious authority, you could come up with something better than this wild theological question that's hypothetical. It's not even real. But here it is. They come up with this story, basically. And it's based on uh, the concept of leveret marriage. Here's the story. Verse 19. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. So this is this concept of leveret marriage, something that was laid out in, based in Deuteronomy 25. And leveret marriage was this. It, it was a practice where a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the name and memory of his deceased brother and to ensure the establishing of his brother's property inheritance within the family line. That's like the dictionary Bible definition. It was a custom that wasn't set aside so that way you could have like, another wife or to promote like, you know, sexual immorality. The, the purpose of it was to prevent intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles, and it was to preserve uh, this widow being provided for in her family line so that that name would go on. You would uh, help your family by providing a child for this woman. Uh, who, who is basically your sister in law, and it only happened in the cases if the the woman's husband died before they had a child and so the Sadducees they come up with this crazy hypothetical story, and here's the story uh, verse twenty there were seven brothers, the first took a wife, and when he died left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So they come up with this idea, like, there's all these brothers, and they all are trying to, like, fulfill this that's written in the law. And nobody ends up, like you know, being able to provide a kid for her. So she goes through all seven, and then finally she dies. And now at the resurrection, which we don't even believe in as Sadducees, whose, whose wife is she actually? Like, that's their actual question. Now, the Pharisees had already kind of ruled on a situation like this, being like the left-leaning liberal theologians that they are. They just said, like, she's the first husband's wife. But here, they're trying to create division again. They don't actually want a question to the, or an answer to this hypothetical crazy question. They are trying to cause problems. They're trying to get Jesus um, and really to disprove the resurrection through kind of this logic. They think it's enough uh, to disprove the resurrection here. Now, their story is built on the assumption that the world to come is essentially an extension of the earth. That the resurrection will be exactly like this, but, like, world 2.0, it's just, like, better. You know, you just, you can eat all, like, the sugar you want, anything you want, you don't get fat, you don't have to exercise. It's, like, all the stuff that you would be like, man, all the bummers. The the understanding uh, that they hold is that the resurrection, the new uh, world, will be exactly like it is here, but just better. And, um... You know, and of course, like, you know, they have this understanding that there's a married state and it will probably be better there as well. But it's kind of it, it seems a little bit foolish, um, but that's kinda of like how we live our lives. When we think about adding Jesus to our lives, it's like, Oh, I wanna I wanna like know Jesus more, but basically what you mean is you wanna like import Jesus into your life and add him to the list of things that you know, you want to do, your hobbies, make Jesus a hobby there's hobby Jesus and you try to live your life and you think if you bring in Jesus you're going to be a little bit better at loving people at giving to the poor and you know observing the the moral and and ethical things that Jesus did but Jesus doesn't allow us to do that when when we want to know Jesus Jesus says you have to throw everything out remember uh we looked at that back um, a couple passages back in, I believe it's Mark 8, when, when Jesus was talking to the rich man. The rich man said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, Jesus looked at that rich man, this rich young ruler, and he said to him, Take everything that you have, sell it, and come and follow me. And it says that the man went away sad. Jesus wasn't actually getting at the fact that, that in order to follow him, you have to be poor. Or you have to get rid of stuff, he's getting at the fact that this man's identity was built upon his riches, his stuff. He was known as the rich young ruler. If he gave it away, he would just be like the young guy who gave away stuff. And he, nobody. that's not really like a popular thing in society. What Jesus is saying is, you can't be known by what you want to be known by. You, want, you must be known by me. Come and follow me. He, he charges the disciples, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me, come after me. that's the charge that he's bringing, and that is is what he is communicating here uh, in response to the Sadducees' question. They have this understanding that the world to come it's going to be exactly like it is now, and in the world to come, after this story happens, what's going to uh, who's going to have this woman as? Uh, the wife. Jesus is like, you don't understand what's going on. You are interpreting it uh, improperly. improperly. Verse 24, here's how he responds. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The beginning of Jesus' response here, it's not just this rebuke uh, to the Sadducees, but it's also a diagnosis. He doesn't just say... You're wrong. Like, this is is not just the reason that you're wrong. He also gives a diagnosis here. He says, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus addresses this question that they have about this situation, but more getting at the heart of the resurrection. And he does it first according to the manner of their error, and then to the fact of the resurrection. And so we'll look at it in those two parts. The first thing that he does is he speaks of the manner of their error he says, you guys are wrong. This is the reason that you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, you guys have wandered away. You've been led astray because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He's saying this like this is probably like the most insane insult ever to this group of people. This is supposed to be like the highest religious, like the most conservative people. You don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. One commentator said this, the audacity of Jesus's accusation of the Sadducees would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing of finance. Scripture and power are precisely the Sadducees' stock and trade. The two matters in which they majored. This was like so natural to them that like they should have been the foremost experts. This was like their strongest point. But Jesus claims that the Sadducees, they don't actually know anything of what they claim to be the strongest in. They're supposed to be like the most like holy, religious, you know, scripture loving people. And Jesus says, you don't even know anything about the scripture or the power of God. The manner of their error that they don't understand, the reason that they're wrong is because they don't know the scriptures and the power of God. Jesus responds uh, and goes on to explain further. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The resurrection life is not like the earthly life. It's not Earth 2.0 but it's an entirely new dimension. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 40, he starts off, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Th- these two things are not synonymous. You're not just going like, to have earthly body and then uh, a perishable body and then another perishable body. It's going to be completely different. You will have something new. And Jesus makes he, he likens it to the angels in heaven. He says, "There, you'll neither marry nor given be given in marriage, because um, but you'll be like the angels in heaven." So he's saying you will be spiritual uh, beings in that sense. But then also he's indicating there, uh, in in response to their story, because they're basically it's about offspring. He's like, "You don't you won't need to to be married there because the angels they don't." Uh, you know they they don't have offspring either. You're going to be like the angels. We don't need them. We don't need. Uh, we're not going to like have more people growing in heaven. Like whoever enters heaven, that's it. Everybody's there. That's it. When when he's indicating that there, he's pointing out that the hypothetical case that the Sadducees are pointing out here, it has no relation to future life. It's completely separate. But then, as as Jesus has kind of come at the the manner of their error, then he transitions here and gives them an example of how the resurrection is different. And, and he speaks here to the fact of the resurrection. Look at verse 26. Now he, he focuses here the fact of the resurrection. Verse 26 says, For the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? So he cites this passage in the Torah because the Sadducees, they only dealt with that. They, and Moses was the strongest uh, prophet there that they would consider. He was the most prominent. And so they would take his word um, as most authoritative. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Here, Jesus uh, quotes from Exodus 3.6, when Moses is out in the wilderness, and the burning bush is on fire, and Moses kind of comes in there to check it out, and God speaks to him, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus is citing this passage that's in the Torah, and uh, God, in this passage, he reveals himself in relation to to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Those patriarchs in Israel's history who have been dead for hundreds of years. But yet, in this passage, God is speaking of them in the present. He doesn't say, I was the God of, like, they're dead. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jesus here is arguing, by quoting this, he's arguing that the promises of God are not made, uh, are made not to the dead, but to the living. When he's doing this, he's saying, he, he's, by citing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's also citing promises that were made to Abraham about the Messiah coming through his line, about the, the stars, you know, the, the people coming from his line that are, that are greater than the stars in the sky. God speaks of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present here. He, he cannot have a relationship with people who are dead, they, have, they who have ceased to exist. Therefore, in God's sight, these patriarchs, they are still living. Although they would be, uh, appear to be dead upon earth, in God's view, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive in resurrected bodies. Here's the ramifications of, of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not being resurrected. And it's a, it's a big deal. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, as the Sadducees believed, then God's promise to them was limited to their time on earth. And it makes his promise to have an end, an end date. And it also makes his promise to be unfulfilled because his promises to them had not yet been fulfilled by the time that they had died. Thus, making God unfaithful to who he is makes him uh, unable to keep his promise. Hebrews 11.8 uh, speaks of Abraham uh, regarding this. If you want to flip over to Hebrews, we're going to like, hop around at three different passages real quick before we wrap up. Hebrews 11 eight. Speaking of Abraham, it says this, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, uh, or, excuse me, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place when he was, that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then if you skip down into verse uh, 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, in whom who he had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, uh, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was even was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So let me break it down for you real quick. What is happening here is the writer of the Hebrews is indicating that when Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar as God tested his faith. Abraham offered up Isaac in faith upon that altar. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, Isaac. I want you to take him up to uh, Mount Moriah and take him up and bring wood and we're going to put him upon this altar and I want you to lay out the altar and tie him up and put him upon the altar. I want you to take your only son and I want you to sacrifice him to me as an, as an offering. And it was crazy for, for Abraham to hear that. Because God had told Abraham, as it, as it tells us here in uh, Hebrews 11.18, it was through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. It was through Isaac's line that the promises of God to Abraham would be fulfilled. And so when Abraham went up there to put Isaac upon that altar, he was doing it in faith, knowing that even if he had to go through with it, I mean, we know from the story that God ultimately told him as Abraham was about to kill his son, he told him, stop. And He said, I will provide for myself a sacrifice. Abraham's faith was being tried and tested there. But yet, even in that moment, it tells us through Abraham's insight uh, in verse 19, he considered, he was willing to go through with what, what God had called him to do, even though it seemed to go against God's promise to him. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God, in that figurative sense, did raise him from the dead, and that he didn't end up allowing him to go through with it. But Abraham's mindset was that God, God would be able to raise him from the dead and keep his promise as he had said. Now, uh, jump down with me back to eleven thirteen. Speaking of the patriarchs, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it tells us this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham hadn't received the promises in his earthly time, but he saw them afar off. In being obedient to God, testing his faith, and, and... taking Isaac upon that altar, his only son, which symbolized the ultimate sacrifice that would be made to fulfill the promise. And now in Mark 12, Jesus stands before the Sadducees as fulfillment of the promise through Isaac. He is the result of this offspring that has come through Isaac. He himself, Christ, is the faithfulness of God, standing before them, explaining this to them and so he says he says it, it, quoting um, Exodus 3:6 there of God, I am the God of, of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob. Jesus is the one who, who is faithful there and he is pointing out God's faithfulness and that God has kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that they are not dead, but they have been, uh, they're alive in God's view. They are resurrected, although they appear to be dead in, uh, in earthly terms. They are alive to God. Speaking now in uh, Hebrews 10, if you flip down uh, one chapter, the writer of the Hebrews then speaks of the fulfillment of that promise through the faithfulness of Jesus. Hebrews 10:19 Therefore, brothers, since we have the have the confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He speaks there of the faithfulness of God to keep his promise and the faithfulness of Jesus to pay the penalty. God has indeed kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God would not make promises to the dead unless the dead were raised to life. And God, God's promises are everlasting promises because God himself is everlasting. His promises are are forever and they don't have an end date, as the Sadducees would presume, presume, because God is eternal. And then Jesus finishes it off. uh, They're speaking to the Pharisees um, this way. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living You are quite wrong. Jesus concludes not only with this affirmation about the resurrection, but also with the condemnation of the Sadducees' position. He says, you're way off base in your thinking here. You're coming to speak of this idea of the resurrection of which you know nothing. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Jesus would ultimately answer the question of the Pharisees regarding the resurrection in just a couple days because they had this question and in a few short days his answer would come in the form of an empty tomb. He was there. His life would testify of the resurrection. He would there testify of it himself. He will be killed and on the third day rise for our justification. The empty tomb will verify what Jesus has said to the Sadducees. But Jesus is not just simply teaching about the resurrection. In John 11, 25, he says he is the resurrection. In John 11, 25, he says, responding to Mary and Martha about this idea of Lazarus being dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who has conquered sin and death. And so, in responding here, Jesus is not only saying that they don't know the power of God, but that if they understood the Scripture, which teaches the resurrection, and they knew the power of God, which raises the dead... That's their manner of error. They don't know the the scripture which teaches the resurrection. They don't know the power of God, which is in fact the thing that raises Christ from the dead. They error. They miss it. But it's interesting here that Jesus is speaking to religious people. You would think like he's arguing with kind of like some random atheist people off the street. It's like, oh that's a little bit crazy. Jesus is speaking to like religious people. People who think that they have it together. And it's a warning, not only to them, but to everybody who's ever sat in the pew of a church or in a a freezing fold-up chair. It's a warning to us all to consider, you know, not just to pass it over and be like, oh, that's so lame of them to, to think that way or to have that view, but to not get comfortable in being religious. To not get comfortable in acting according to the law and being being argumentative about the scripture and the power of God and to be found in the place where we know of neither if you know the scripture then you'll know the power of God because the scripture testifies of the power of God Jesus in this passage and in all the passages has attempted to reveal himself he wants people to know him in the same way that we want to know him and we want others to know him. And so the way that we know him is through his word, as he's been revealed to us in his word. And so, scripture is the primary way in which we know God, in which we understand who he is, his love for us, his power. And as we dig in as we ask Jesus to work within us. That's why we pray together on Sunday mornings that the Lord would minister to us. Because if we come on our own and we're just kind of like reading through it, going through the motions, it's just, it's nothing. But it's the power of God through the Holy Spirit working in our lives that changes us. And that's what we want. We want to be changed and transformed by the word of God. So that we might rightly think and respond to the scripture, that we might not just see the world that we live in and respond only to that, but to what Jesus has called us to do. We don't want to be like uh, the Sadducees who are coming up with these hypothetical situations, you know, that assume that life will go on as it has here forever. But there are eternal consequences that we must consider that will influence and Change the way that we live. When we understand that we need to live in light of those things. And we want to respond and not just hear about them, but we want to be doers of the word together. And so let's ask the Lord to to teach us and to minister uh, that to us now. Lord, we're thankful for your goodness to us and for your faithfulness and that we can be a part of your family. Lord, that um, we don't have to be found in a conservative camp or a liberal camp as the Pharisees and the Sadducees were found, Lord, but we want to be um, faithful to your word, Lord, that we might know you and we might know your power. Lord, we don't want to use you as the the Pharisees and the Sadducees we're, were trying to do as a, as a means to an end, trying to overthrow the Romans or to create a, a nationalistic uh, society and, and to establish their own priorities. Lord. But we want to know you and worship you. We want to rightly recognize you as the heir who has been sent, Lord, and we want to receive you likewise. We want to celebrate who you are, Lord. And, Lord, we we pray that you would minister this word to us this morning, that it would find a place in our hearts, Lord, and that we would respond to it, Lord. We want to be transformed by it. We want to um, be changed by your word. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister it it to us. Lord, we pray that the enemy would not cause distraction or we would feel uh, guilt or shame or fear, but that we would rightly um, rejoice as a result of receiving your word. We love you. Amen.